Now that is the way I ought to be introduced every week. <laughs> Obviously. Actually, I was supposed to come up after that played. But today we're going to look at one of the hallelujah, the hallelujah psalms for Thanksgiving. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to turn to Psalm 150. Psalm 150. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, how appropriate to sing about thanking you over and over again. How appropriate to have the hallelujah chorus play. Because that's all about boasting of you. We pray, Father, that as we look at a Hallel psalm, a hallelujah psalm, a praise psalm, that we would recognize the joy in attributing greatness to you and acknowledging your perfections of having thankful hearts for what you have done, what you've done in the past, what you will do in the future, what you are doing. You are a great God. And Father, as we go into the Thanksgiving season, Fill our hearts with gratitude for your grace in our lives. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. There was a gentleman. He had purchased a new horse and he was a trainer and decided to train this particular horse by verbal commands. Rather than just physical commands, he wanted the horse to respond to certain sayings. And so he thought, you know what, I'm a Christ follower. I'm going to teach him some commands that correspond to my faith. And so he thought, you know, I'm going to teach the horse to stop when I say hallelujah. And to go when I say praise the Lord. And that worked pretty well. And one particular day, he took the horse to a new area. The horse had not been there before. But the rider had, the trainer had, and they got going. Something spooked the horse. And the horse began to race. And the owner, the trainer, thought, man, i got to slow this horse down. But in the moment of this concern, he forgot exactly what command that he had uttered. So he said, Jesus Christ, and the horse did nothing. Holy, 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 Lord of hosts. He knew that they were coming around a bend that had a precipice, a drop off, and the horse didn't know it, and, and the horse was barreling towards it, and he couldn't remember the command. Finally, just as they turned the corner, he remembered, and he yelled out, hallelujah, and the horse stopped. And you can imagine his thankfulness. And he said, praise the Lord. <laughs> All right, that was kind of lame. They get worse from here on out, just letting you know. But what is not lame is worshiping God. That's not lame. Like many of you, when my kids were small, I brought them through a catechism 
The most famous catechism, perhaps, in the Western world is the Westminster Catechism of Faith. There's a longer catechism and a shorter catechism. I don't know why they call it shorter, because it's long. And there's a book about this thick that's written for devotions for families on the shorter catechism of the Westminster Catechism of Faith. I brought my kids through it twice. And it's a series of questions and then answers and then scripture verses. And the very first question is this, what is the chief end or what is the chief goal of man? And the chief end or goal of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In fact, there's a lot of verses that go along with that, one of which is Revelation 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed, and they were created. Today we're going to look at one of the Hallel, the Hallelujah Psalms. It's appropriate at this time of year, but frankly, it's appropriate at all times of year. God did not design us to praise him one Sunday a week, as you well know. He didn't design us to praise him one national day a year, as you all know. God designed us, he created us to praise him 24-7, 365 for all of eternity. The passage I just read from Revelation 4, along with Revelation 5, is from the throne room of God where the created beings, the angelic beings, and these strange beings that we read about are surrounding God. They're praising him. They're exalting him. They're filled with joy. They're filled with jubilation as they lift and exalt and they boast on God. Today I want to read one of the more famous psalms. It's Psalm 150. Perhaps you know it. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. As you and I begin, verse 1 says, praise the Lord. The fact of the matter is, 31 of the 77 words of my English Standard Version are praise the Lord, praise God, or praise Him. If you just memorize those three, praise the Lord, praise God, and praise Him, you've got half the psalm down pat. Now some of you, I know this because you have big gray matter between the ears, some of you will have this psalm memorized by next Sunday. A few of you Delta Force Christians are going to have this psalm memorized by Thanksgiving, and you'll recite it by memory to your family. A few of us who have a little more difficulty memorizing, we're going to read it often. But this is a psalm 
that is worthy of understanding. It's a psalm that calls us to praise God. It's one of the Hallel Psalms. It's called that because Hallu means to boast on God, and then it's followed by the shortened form of Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter word describing the most sacred name of God. There are five psalms, Psalm 145, all the way to Psalm 150. We call them the Hallel Psalms because they're all about praising God. Now, I want us to think about this strategically. We all know that the Psalter has 150 psalms as it is written today. In Hebrew, it might have a slightly different number because a few psalms are joined together. But we have 150 psalms in English. The last five psalms are all about praising God, exalting God, lifting God up. Now think about the Psalter. The Psalter is unlike most of Scripture, is it not? Most of Scripture is God talking to us. The Psalter predominantly is us talking to God, and yet the literature is still inspired, it's still inerrant. Because it is man talking to God, we have the widest range of emotions found in all of Scripture in the Psalter. There are times that we are on the mountaintop and we're praising God, and there are other times we're in the valley. There are times we are filled with jubilation, and other times we are filled with grief. There are times we are filled with praise, and other times we are filled with lament. And so the Psalter, for 145 psalms, goes through all of these varied emotions, giving us insight on how Christ's followers are to live in the midst of varied emotions, living in a tainted world with tainted lives. And then at the end, we have five psalms. Psalm 145, or 46, all the way to Psalm 150. Five psalms that tell us to praise God. It's not by accident that the Hallel psalms are at the end. Because the Psalter wants us to understand that whether we're on the mountaintop or we're in the valley, whether we're in jubilation and we're in grief, we still praise God. We still exalt God. We have no right to shake our fist at God and say, what are you doing? Where are you? Why are you not responding to me? Regardless of the circumstance, that doesn't mean we, we push and pack our feelings down, but regardless of the circumstance, there's still reasons to praise God. Now think with me strategically about some of the Psalter. I'm going to mention three types of psalms. Scholars divide the psalms into some nine different categories, some 11, some even more than that. I'm just going to mention three. I'm going to mention first the most controversial of all of the psalms, the imprecatory psalms. There's seven of them. There's seven imprecatory psalms, and there are other psalms that have imprecatory categories in them. Now, what is an imprecatory psalm? It's a psalm in which predominantly David, like Psalm 35, says, God, go get him. Sick him, God. Take him out. I'm tired of them. 
And we evangelicals, we read that and we say, oh, I'm not sure that belongs in the Psalter. But yet this is real to life. This is the angst. This is the anger. The righteous anger sometimes Christ followers have when they see the name of God denigrated, the things of God ignored and destroyed in the world. And so David says, man, take them out. And we say, man, a little decaf, David, calm down. There's seven in precatory psalms. The second category are lament psalms. By my count, there are 51 lament psalms. 51 of the 150, about a third of the Psalter, though beyond that have lament aspects. The lament psalms are the type of psalms that we often gravitate towards during times of difficulty because lament is sorrow. It's pain, it's hurt, it's grief. They're real to life. These are real people going through real rivers of life, real difficulty. And we pour out our heart to the Lord. A third of the Psalter is lament. (coughs) The last type of psalm I'm going to mention are penance psalms. Penitentiary psalms. They're the psalms in which we come to God and we say, man, I have really messed up. I have really sinned. Psalm 32. Psalm 51 that Pastor Ken preached about two months ago. That's a penance psalm. In Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's committed murder with Uriah. He has ignored that sin for nine months until David conf- or Nathan confronts David and said, you're the man. And David is crumbled in his spirit and he turns to God in confession and the power of God's spirit. He turns away from sin and, and towards righteousness he repents. That's a penance psalm. So you take those three categories alone, imprecatory, penance, and lament, And you have about 65 psalms, and they're all about the difficulty of life. And that's the way the Psalter often reads, isn't it? It's real to life because it's about the difficulty you and I experience. But again, as we go through the Psalter and we see these real-life situations, we come to the end, and there's not one psalm, there's not two or three or four, there are five Hallel psalms at the end for the precise purpose of letting us know that no matter what goes on in life, whether we're on the mountaintop or we're in the valley, whether we're in jubilation or we're in grief, we still have reason to praise God. And that's why they're at the end of the Psalter, the five Hallel Psalms. Now that may be where you are today. In the lament, in the imprecatory, in the penance. Maybe you're in the river. Maybe you're in the difficulty. And, and if so, my heart goes out to you. And I'm sure the Lord's heart goes out to you. But the Psalter is set up to let you, to let I, to let us know that no matter what goes on in life, there's still reason to praise our great God. So that's how the Psalter ends. How does it begin? 
It begins with God as well. Let me read Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the Psalter begins in the grow, connect, grow, go. It's beginning in the word of God so that we might know God. And as we work through the Psalter, through the laments and the imprecations, and we work through the penance and the other types of Psalms, we get to the end because we're learning about this God and we're learning about life, and yet we still praise the Lord. Now think with me, if you will, in Psalm 1, 1 and 2. It says that we should not be around those who are wicked. Well, that makes sense. The wicked are those who have nothing to do with God. Then it says we shouldn't stand with sinners. And you look at me and you tell me to leave the room. And I look at you and I say, you guys got to follow. And there's no one left in the room. We're all sinners. But the psalmist isn't using it that way. The psalmist is using it to refer to those who are not Christ followers, those who, from his vantage point, are looking for a redeemer, from our vantage point, are looking back on a redeemer. He's not saying don't go and connect, grow, go to the unbeliever. He's just saying our closest relationship is not to stand with the unbeliever. So we don't hang around the wicked. We don't stand in the closest relationship with the unbeliever, and we don't sit with the scoffer, the one who mocks the things of God. But what do we do? We connect ourselves to the Word of God, and we grow. We read the law of God. And as we read the law of God, and as we go through life, we constantly realize that no matter what life throws at us, this God is so great that we are to praise him. That's how the Psalter works. Now think with me about some of the Psalms. I wish we could spend a lot of time, I wish I had a lot more time today than I do. But think with me at some of the high points of the Psalms. We started with Psalm 1, which tells us to delight in the word, to delight in the law, to, to grow. Then I think of another high point, Psalm 22. Jesus cited it while he was on the cross, did he not? In Psalm 22, the psalmist is looking forward to a redeemer. We look back on a redeemer, but nobody has been saved in all of history without faith in a redeemer. It's the incarnation. It's God becoming man and dwelling among us, living a perfect life and laying down his life as a penalty of our sin that through faith in him we would be given eternal life. That's what Psalm 22 is all about. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. Then we think of Psalm 23. It's one of our favorites. That's where we remember that God is the shepherd. He's the one that leaves the 90 mind to, to go after the one, and it seems like we're often the one who is wandering, and he comes after us. And he anoints us, and he sets a table before our enemies. And even when we get to death, and we walk through the shadow of death, he walks with us. <coughs> we think of Psalm 32 and 51, we've already mentioned. That's when David commits adultery and murder and nine months of wandering, and yet God goes after him. 
We think of Psalm 57. That's a time period when an individual is going through the roughest parts of life, the difficulty of life, the, the travesty of life, and, and God is there. We think of Psalm 71, going into Psalm 72. It's a psalm that reminds us that in our later years, when we're up in age, God is with us. We think of Psalm 119, the longest psalm. It's all about the grow and connect, grow, go. It's all about the centrality of the word, knowing God through the word and knowing the characteristics and attributes of God through the word. We think of Psalm 139, where we learn that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that we are made in the imago Dei, in the image of God, and, and how special that is. And as we peruse through the Psalter, whether they're highs or lows, again, we're reminded by the Hallel Psalm, that God is with us and he is worthy to be praised. Why is he worthy to be praised? Look at verse 1 of Psalm 150. It says, the Lord, he is the one who is worthy. Why? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. It is because of his mighty works and his great attributes. Let's start with who. Who are we to praise? The Lord. If you look at Psalm 150, you'll discover in six verses, we are told to praise the Lord no less than 17 times. Praise God, praise the Lord, praise Him, a various pronoun for God. 17 times we are told to praise the Lord. Who do we praise? It's God. We don't praise fellow man. Sometimes we get this wrong and all our hopes are put in a person, or it's put in a political party, or it's put in a job, or it's put in a portfolio, or it's put in a personal possession. But the scripture says, who do we place our confidence in? Who do we praise? Who do we boast about? It's all about God. God is the central figure of scripture. It's the central figure of this text. And where are we to praise him? Verse 1 says we are to praise him in the sanctuary. We are to praise him corporately. Now we can praise God anywhere. Yesterday while I was out in a deer stand seeing absolutely no deer, I had nothing else to do but to praise him or to read my sermon notes or to fall asleep. Maybe that's why I didn't see any deer, I don't know. We can praise God anywhere, but Scripture says specifically we are to praise him in the sanctuary. That's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, 25 says, Do not forsake the assembly of the saints as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as the day approaches. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 100, verse 1, that we are to give thanks to the Lord and we are to meet the Lord in the sanctuary and at the gates we are to give him praise. We are all about going together corporately to worship the Lord. So who do we praise? It's God. Where do we praise him? We praise him in the sanctuary. Why do we praise him? Verse 2, for his mighty deeds and his excellent greatness. I love the way John puts it 
In John chapter 1, the third verse, he says this. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Why do we praise God? He made the universe. He made us. He sustains us. He offers us eternal life through faith in his son. What part of that do I deserve? None. What part of that do you deserve? None. There's lots of reasons we praise the Lord. And then when we pray and believe in Christ and place our faith in him, he holds on to us. He's the down payment guaranteeing our future inheritance. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. He holds on to us. I love what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So who are we to praise the Lord? Where do we praise him? Everywhere, but specifically in the sanctuary. Why do we praise him? Because of his mighty works and his great deeds. We praise this God. How do we praise him? Oh, the answer is varied. Look at verses 3 to 5. Here we have a half a dozen, I think eight actually, different instruments mentioned that were part of temple worship. These are the instruments by which we praise God. The first one that I'm going to interact with is trumpet. It's not the word I would expect. I would expect karin or hazratzerat, which is the most common word for trumpet. It's found 29 times in temple worship. 28 of those 29 times, it's in the plural. There's more than one trumpet blaring simultaneously. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we have 120 of these trumpets playing simultaneously in temple worship. I'm thinking that's rather loud at that moment. But those are not the words used. It's the word shofar, and I wouldn't expect that. Shofar is the ram's horn trumpet. It was actually the call to battle. It's the call to war. The implication is part of our worship is readying ourselves to take on the enemy of our soul. For the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Put on the armor of God. Put on the shoes shod with the gospel of peace and the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God and the shield of faith, to put out the flaming darts of the evil one and the helmet of salvation. We are to be ready for battle. We come to church. We come to corporate worship to praise God and to be equipped by God and by God's word to go out, connect, grow, go, to go to a world that is lost and to go out against the enemy of our soul, Satan and his minions. And so part of the temple worship was the blaring of the shofar, the call to battle. And that's part of the worship experience for Christ's followers. The second couple instruments mentioned are the lute 
the nebel and the harp, kenor. These are the most common instruments found in temple worship in the Bible. The, the lute or the harp is found 69 times inside temple worship. It's not at all what we think. We think of a harp as a soft, melodious instrument, very gentle, soothing, background music that you'd like when you eat a nice dinner at a nice restaurant. That's not this word. Musicologists tell us that it's kind of a, a triangular instrument with a long shaft with about 12 strings through it. Kind of looks like an electric guitar or a bass. It sounds like a banjo, a, a foot stomp and hand clapping festive instrument. And it's the most common instrument used in temple worship. The idea is if you've been around uh, Jewish music, it's kind of festive. You kind of want to to move and sway with it and dance and, and twirl and, well, let's not get carried away. This isn't charismatic here. But you get the idea of what kind of worship is going on. The last two instruments are the cymbal and the clanging cymbal, zazalim. Interestingly enough, it's never found in the singular, always in the plural. These are only one of five percussion instruments found in the Old Testament in temple worship. As near as I can tell, there are 16 different instruments listed in temple worship. And the variety is staggering. You go to 2 Chronicles chapter 23 and you find that there's a choir of 288 voices. That's a pretty impressive choir. You go to 2 Chronicles 25 and you discover that 4,000 of the Levites that served various stints in the temple were professional musicians, 4,000 of them. 16 different instruments. Some are wind instruments, some are brass, some are percussion. Some of the type of instruments are more like you would find in a little band, maybe in the bluegrass hills of Kentucky, a banjo type of foot-stomping music, that's all a part of temple worship. Some of it's soft. Some of it's medium. Some of it's loud. Some of it's traditional. Some of it's contemporary. These are preferential. They're cultural issues. What really matters is the heart. The heart of the matter is the heart of worship. Are we exalting, are we praising this great God? You'll even notice in verse 4 that they're dancing. We're going to leave that for the marathon campus. We don't dance here in Wausau. But Pastor Brian, man, looks like Fred Astaire. You should see him sometime. So who do we worship? 17 times in six verses we're told to worship God. Where do we worship? Well, anywhere, but very specifically, we are commanded to worship God in the sanctuary. Why do we worship him? Because of his mighty deeds, his excellent greatness. How do we worship him? A wide variety, and yet another who. Who is to be worshiping? Anyone who has breath. 
Anyone who has breath ought to be thankful for the breath that God has given us. How important is worship? Thirteen times in six verses, we are told to praise God. And again, we think of the Hallel Psalms. They're at the end of the Psalter. They're at the end of lament. They're at the end of imprecatory. They're at the end of penance. They're at the end of life. All of life is covered. And regardless of what life throws, we are called to praise God, to get our praise on. I'll close with this. It's from 1976 when Howard Hughes died. His Summa Corporation, which held vast holdings in Las Vegas, called several of the casinos and said, in honor of Howard Hughes, we would like you to have a minute of silence in the casinos. And so over the loudspeakers, there was a request for a minute of silence for Howard Hughes. And you can imagine how awkward it was. Back in 1976, a number of people holding their little cups with all their quarters, about to put one in the slots, and they're now waiting for, for 60 seconds. You have people in front of the blackjack tables, and they're looking around not knowing what to do. It's silent for 60 seconds. There's the stick men holding their, their dice, and they're wondering when can they begin the craps again. And finally, a pit boss yelled out, looking at his watch, he's had his 60 seconds. Throw the dice. And everything began again. And I think the psalmist is worried that that's what I do in life. He's worried that I get up in the morning and I say my prayers and if I have a little time, I read some scripture and then I live life. Or I go to church eh, a couple times a month, maybe. And I'm, I'm done with the sermon. The guy's been a windbag, really long-winded. And I finally get out, and, and I'm done with that obligation for the next six and three-quarters days. That's not what the psalmist is encouraging. He's encouraging us regardless of what life throws at us, to get our praise on, to praise God throughout life, in life, during life, to always include God in our life, now and, of course, through eternity. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for a reminder of thanksgiving given nationally to us by our government, and we're grateful for it. We're thankful for the, the Sabbat, the day of rest, the Sabbath that for us, for most of us, is Sunday, reminds us to set a time, time to worship. We thank you for our quiet times, and if we're in a connection care group or a Bible study, we're thankful for that. But beyond all that, Lord, help us to remember to praise you at all points of life, in all circumstances of life. Help us to get our praise on 
It is right. And you are worthy. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.